Bonnet's Dawn, the show that explores the lives and works of women writers from the 18th, 19th and 20th centuries. I'm your host, Hannah Chapman. And I am your host, Lauren Burke. And this week is the second episode of our Agnes Grey read-long. We'll be discussing chapters 9 to 16 and later we'll be joined by author Finola Austin, who is the author of Bronte's Mistress. So um, let me just take a swig of my gin and tonic and then we can get into it, okay? I wish I hadn't downed my wine so quickly. (laughs) Mistake, Hannah, because we have a lot of notes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) All right. So in this set of chapters, uh, we meet a gaggle of lads. There's flirting. There's a proposal and just, you know, all sorts of good stuff. So very good set of chapters. Maybe maybe my favorite. Interesting. Uh, Yeah, maybe. There's a few things that I really like happening here. So um, chapter nine. The ball. We love a ball. Agnes comes back from holiday and we hear nothing about that. (laughs) Um, She's been gone for about four weeks and is straight back in the schoolroom being yelled at by Matilda and Rosalie. So Matilda wants to talk about her new horse and Rosalie wants to talk about her coming out ball. Really good dialogue. Rosalie gloats about flirting with a married man and upsetting his wife. And we're introduced to, you know, all these lads. So there's Sir Thomas Ashby, Harry Melton, Mr. Green, who is uh, a mere country booby. (laughs) That guy. That made me laugh so much when I read it. (laughs) (laughs) And there's Mr. Hatfield. So there's a bunch of other dudes who are listed. But, you know, really, we're going to just take note of these guys. Uh, Rosalie says, I really detest them all. But Harry Melton, he is the hands, he is the handsomest and most amusing, and Mr. Hatfield is the cleverest. Sir Thomas the wickedest, and Mr. Green the most stupid. But the one I, but the one I'm to have, I suppose, if I'm doomed to have any of them, is Sir Thomas Ashby. So, she goes on to say, if I could always be young, I would always be single. I should like to enjoy myself thoroughly and coquette with all the world till I'm on the verge of being an old maid. Agnes also learns that the rector, Mr. Hatfield, was at the ball and he didn't think it was unclerical. Interesting. Yeah, I found that really interesting as well. It felt like such a Mr. Collins thing, right? Just all these these rectors love dance. Like, you know, well, Mm -hmm. he doesn't dance, but they love going to parties and then like really justifying it. Oh, this is fine. Oh, I think it's fine that I'm here. This one especially, right? Um, Rosalie confirms that he didn't dance and then spills the tea that he has a new curate. Weston, I mean, again, so this is where I'm getting, obviously, Emma vibes. Yeah. Weston, his name is. Just like Mr. Weston and Emma, guys. I can give you his description in three words. An insensate, ugly, stupid blockhead. That's four, but no matter. Enough of him for now. So we're going to keep note of him as well, right? Now in chapter 10, we go to church. Rosalie asks Agnes what she thinks of the new curate. And Agnes can't tell yet and says that from one glance, she cannot judge his character. But she did like his style of reading because it felt like he really wanted to 
like give the full effect to every lesson. So she's, you know, complimentary. Mm-hmm. Rosalie announces that she's an excellent judge of character, which means she obviously is not. Right. Says he's a blockhead. And it's basically because he just isn't attentive to her in the way that Mr. Hatfield is, mm-hmm. who is intent on making not only a good impression with her, but her family as well. And he just, like we were saying, he just feels so much like Mr. Elton. And I think the Autumn de Wilde Agnes Grey would just be mad scenes. It'd be I think great. it would be really good. Yeah. Yeah, she could get that dark comedy that we were talking mm-hmm. about last week. Mm-hmm. So Agnes also thinks that Mr. Weston, uh, he, do you know what I'm going to do this all episode? Hmm. So Agnes does think that Mr. Hatfield is very attentive to the family and that he pointedly ignores her because she's just the governess. But it actually hmm. isn't just him. It's like none of Rosalie's friends will talk to her. Right. And she, so Rosalie decides to go to church again because you can go to church twice on a Sunday. And it's because she's bored and she wants to see Harry Melton again. Mm -hmm. And for me, that bit was actually really relatable because I remember uh, when I was a teenager starting to go to church because I fancied the guy. And then I just was like in love with every man at church. (laughs) So I would just go like four times a week just so I could like make eyes at them. It's very on brand. Yeah. (laughs) So I was like, yeah, Rosalie, you you should go twice a day. So they go to church again and Agnes gets the chance to compare Mr. Weston to Mr. Hatfield. And there's this incredible passage describing Mr. Hatfield. And it's just absolutely one of my favourite things from the novel. I think it's on par with that description of Mrs. Bloomfield Senior. Mm -hmm. It's quite long, but it's perfection. So I'm going to read it. Mr. Hatfield would come sailing up the aisle, or rather sweeping along like a whirlwind, with his rich silk gown flying behind him and rustling against the pew doors, mount the pulpit like a conqueror ascending his triumphal car, then, sinking on the velvet cushion in an attitude of studied grace, remain in silent prostration for a certain time, then mutter over a collect and then gabble through the Lord's Prayer, rise, draw off one bright lavender glove to give to the congregation the benefit of his sparkling rings, lightly pass his fingers through his well-curled hair, flourish a cambric handkerchief, recite a very short passage or perhaps a mere phrase of scripture as a headpiece to his discourse and finally deliver a composition which, as a composition, might be considered good though far too studied and too artificial to be pleasing to me. The propositions were well laid down, the arguments logically conducted, and yet it was sometimes hard to listen quietly throughout without some slight demonstrations of disapproval or impatience. I mean, hilarious. Yeah. It's just made for film. It really is. Like, I can actually, like, see the actor who played mm-hmm. Mr. Elton in Autumn to Wilde's yeah. Emma as Prince well. Charles. Like, he would, yeah, he would crush this scene. So in chapter 11, we meet the cottagers. So these are the folks that are living on the Murray estate. Agnes has more free time now that Rosalie is out and Matilda is really her only full-time student. So she's starting to go out with the Miss Murrays to visit the cottagers. And um, the girls are described as being horribly patronizing. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) So uh, um, another great passage uh, of description here. They would watch the poor creatures at their meals, making uncivil remarks about their foods and their manner of eating. 
They would laugh at their simple notions and provincial expressions till some of them scarcely durst venture to speak. They would call grave elderly men and women old fools and silly old blockheads to their faces. Because of this behavior, Agnes prefers to make all of her visits alone and in particular likes to visit one Nancy Brown. So she's a widow with failing eyesight who is experiencing what Agnes describes as religious melancholy. She agrees to visit when she has the time to read from the Bible to Nancy. And their conversations turn to Mr. Weston and Mr. Hatfield. And Nancy tells her about the different ways that the two men treat her. So when Mr. Hatfield visits, he's very dismissive and cruel, especially when it comes to the health issues that keep Nancy from always attending church or reading her Bible. And that bit, I think that description of how he is with her really reminded me of those horror stories that I don't know if it's the same in the States, but when people are being like uh, assessed for disability benefits here or for their um, like disabled parking badges and they'll say to them like walk 20 meters and then if they can do it, if it's like a good day and they can manage it or like this idea that walking is the only way that someone can be disabled Mm -hmm. and then saying like, well, you can't have it because you're not. And so him being like, if you can walk around the house, you can walk to church. And that just, to me, felt like another really great instance of um, nothing ever changes. Yeah. And this book very much speaks to people's experiences today. And I think if this was a modern adaptation, Mr. Hatfield could be a benefits person. (laughs) I don't know what that job title is, but... You know, when she does go to church and tries to ask him for spiritual advice it's interesting that he doesn't have the time and describes her to mr weston as like just a canting old fool so even when she gets there and she hears yeah well it's so i mean i think it goes back to like and all this without meaning to offend he just doesn't care he just doesn't give a Mm -mm. shit yeah and after hearing this mr weston comes to visit her and he listens to her doubts and her worries they discuss sin and loving your neighbor and he gives her like just very calm solid and practical advice suggesting that she actively try and help her neighbors and remember that god loves them she tells agnes that mr west that mr weston has visited her multiple times And she also learns uh, while visiting a dying laborer that Mr. Weston has been visiting them, too, and giving them coal to be warm. So he's just this kind, decent, godly man. And he's very much the opposite of Mr. Hatfield. And I think what Anne Mm -hmm. is really doing here is just setting up these these opposites. Comparisons. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um. Agnes begins to reflect on the loneliness that she's felt over the years and describes what we would now recognize as a pretty deep depression. And this is um, actually the quote I was uh, talking about last week when I got my notes That's mixed why I up. It. Yeah, um, which is so Valette esque. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in returning to the lodge, I felt very happy and thanked God that I now that I had now something to think about. Something to dwell on as a relief from the weary monotony, the lonely drudgery of my present life. For I was lonely. My distinctions of right and wrong confounded, and all my better faculties be sunk at last beneath the baneful influence of such a mode of life. So. Super depressed. It's a lot. (laughs) And it's understandable, too, because here she is. She's very isolated. And Mm -hmm. she has no support 
and she's saying like I have no one to talk to about anything anything and the thing about the Brontes is like at least they had each other you know they could go Mm -hmm. home see each other and trade you know battle stories and they could write to each other and at least they had sort of an understanding of what you know the other was going through but nothing here but if you're only going home twice a year that's not a lot in the the months in between Mm -hmm. like even if you do go home to someone who can understand what like the present moment of it is still going to be yeah terrible and it's not like she can pop up the road like agnes is completely alone yeah and i'm I'm really starting to like feel a little bit this way as well because I mean so many of us obviously are isolated in our homes, we're without our colleagues, we're without our friends and yeah, I it's just it's easy to see how this is all getting to her and why she's so much in her head, I think as well. Mhm. So, Mr. Weston coming into her life is really a breath of fresh as they would say on bitch sesh. Um so he's a true force of true force of good um she does not call him handsome which is interesting and really seems to go out of her way to describe him as being very normal and run-of-the-mill and she interrupts herself thinking about him the first instance of many which i think is really really sweet and it's one of those moments that reminds you that you know agnes is talking to you and not Anne. so um there's this one passage where she says There was character, too, in the mouth, something that bespoke of a man of firm purpose and a habitual thinker. And when he smiled, but I will not speak of that yet. For at the time, I mentioned, I had never seen him smile. So she's like, let me just back it up and not get ahead of myself. Yeah. Yeah, I really like that bit. So next up in chapter 12, The Shower, we have another visit to Nancy Brown. It has been a minute since Agnes last went because the little brats have been keeping her on her toes. If Agnes isn't immediately available to them at every hour of the day, she gets an earful and there's this good line, climax of horror, actually waiting for their governess. I thought that was funny. And there are four exclamation marks. Yeah. Three at once. (laughs) And yeah, just instances like that because that feels like really modern punctuation. Yeah, it really does. So Nancy's cat has gone missing and obviously we no longer can go more than two paragraphs without Mr. Weston making an appearance or being brought up in conversation. Mm -hmm. Guess what? He found the cat. Of course he did. It's raining. Mr. Weston abruptly enters the cottage dripping wet and holding a lost cat. Is this virtue signaling? I think it is. I don't know. He probably stole the cat. Um, I, well, do you think Mr. Weston stole the cat? No, no, I was just being pithy. But um, did you read Save the Cat in school? Was that assigned? Is that assigned over there as it is over here for like a lot of writing uh, classes? I did not read okay. It. So um, it's interesting. No one gave that to you at your semester at Columbia because I feel like it comes with every class at Columbia College in Chicago. <laughs> um, Save the Cat, we've talked about this a bit in the Facebook group, is um, yeah, it's a. I guess a textbook or a nonfiction book, a how to write book. And essentially, you know, your hero is the good guy because he'll do something like saving the cat. Saving the yeah. cat. Yeah. So I don't know. Did that guy rip off Anne Bronte? Maybe. 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 So, of course, because it's raining, Nancy won't hear about either of them leaving. And so what follows is just the most awkward 
small talk and back and forth of, oh, you have company, I won't stay long. <laughs> no, no, I'm just leaving. No, you both have to sit down. Oh, well, she can sit by the fire. No, I don't want to sit by the fire. Okay, I'll sit by the fire. And just no one leaves. Yeah. And then when they do leave, even that's awkward. And you're just like, so. everyone, sit down so these, these two can fall in love, please. Yeah, please. <laughs> So chapter 13 opens with this uh, relatable for Hannah line. Miss Murray now always went twice to church for she so loved admiration that she could not bear to lose a single opportunity of obtaining it. And of course, if Miss Murray is going twice, that means Agnes is going too. So going to church doesn't only give Rosalie the chance to be admired there, but also allows the young ladies the opportunity to walk home with one or two of the lads. And um, Agnes doesn't always get to walk with them. So sometimes she's, you know, with those guys and other times she's just like packed off with the parents. There's this really great paragraph that gets into the complicated feelings that Agnes and many governesses like her have about, you know, their place in society. And all of these thoughts kind of come up uh, on these walks. I think it's a really good good place for it, actually. So she says, when I did walk, the first half of the journey was generally a great nuisance to me, as none of the before mentioned ladies and gentlemen ever noticed me. It was disagreeable too to walk behind and thus appear to acknowledge my own inferiority, for in truth, I considered myself pretty nearly as good as the best of them and wished them to know that I did so. I love that one line in particular. Um because I think it says so much to my understanding of Agnes. I considered myself pretty nearly as good as the best of them Mm -hmm. and wished them to know that I did so. Yeah. She's like, she wants them to know that she, she thinks she's better than them. I just, because so many of the comments about Agnes are that she's like spineless or she's got no spark Mm -hmm. to her. And you've literally got this line where she is like, I know it's internally, but she's like, She's not internalizing what they think of her. She's like, I'm pretty, like, I'm pretty good. Like, I'm almost as good as, like, the best of you. And you should know that. It's like this sparky little attitude that's kind of, like, surviving in her. Mm -hmm. I think it's, yeah, I don't know. I like it. I just think it, like, adds something to her. And you have, like, these little lines um, that are just kind of, like, dotted in there. I think it's fine. I think it's fine for Agnes to, like, be a little arrogant about her moral superiority like it's okay for her to have a a nuanced personality yeah and not just like be entirely sad yeah I like it I thought it was funny no I think you're right I mean a lot of people are saying in the comments that she's completely broken down but she does have this attitude she just she can't say it I mean if she says it she's gone she's fired fired yeah so On this occasion, uh, Rosalie and Matilda are joined by Mr. Green and his sister and their visitors, Captain Somebody and Lieutenant Somebody Else, just a couple of military dudes. It's funny, though. Some Captain Somebody and Lieutenant Somebody Else. Yeah, yeah. That's a funny line. It's really funny. Agnes is funny. It's modern, too, right? Like, that's how you'd, like, write home to a friend. Like, some dude, some other guy. Who cares? Um, Which is why she's lagging behind and she's trying not to miss home and just losing herself and her surroundings. And she spots three primroses, which are her favorite, high on a bank, uh, peeping from the roots of an oak tree. And then she hears a soft voice behind her and it's Mr. Weston. And he 
plucks the primroses for her and the pair walk on together discussing flowers and eventually the conversation turns to home. And Mr. Weston expresses some jealousy that Agnes actually has a home to return to and hints at some tragic backstory. So he tells her that the human heart is like India rubber, which could be the lyrics to a Taylor Swift song. Is it on folklore? I mean, it should be on folklore. Yeah, it should be. (laughs) And then um, he takes his leave. Then we get another instance of Agnes alluding to keeping some secrets to herself. So she says, I began this book with the intention of concealing nothing. That, and which is what I liked about it, Agnes, to be fair. Um, <laughs> that those who liked might have the benefit of perusing a fellow creature's heart. But we have some thoughts that all the angels in heaven are welcome to behold, but not our brother men, not even the best and kindest amongst them, which I think this is very interesting because this is really where the story, I feel like, takes a turning point. And this book does kind of feel like maybe two books because we do have this like almost documentary documentary mm. style like storytelling about a governess. And then we also have this love story, which we're now getting caught up in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Agnes catches up with Matilda and Rosalie, who immediately accuse her of flirting with Mr. Weston. It's been clocked. Please note. And of visiting Nancy Brown for that sole purpose and ignore her when she tries to explain why that obviously isn't the case. And she has no time for their bullshit. This chapter actually closes with a thought to the primroses, which is really, really sweet. And she says... As for the primroses, I kept two of them in a glass in my room until they were completely withered and the housemaid threw them out. And the petals of the other I pressed between the leaves of my Bible. I have them still and mean to keep them always. And that line made me think he was dead. (laughs) I remember reading it and going, oh, Oh, another fucking Bronze novel with a dead boyfriend. (laughs) Wow, wow, wow. So next we have chapter 14, which uh, is one of the longer chapters in the book. There's a lot that happens Mm -hmm. story-wise. We meet Snap, who is Matilda's cute little puppy. And Matilda hates the dog because at first she's like, he's my dog, don't touch him. And then cannot be bothered. So Agnes is the only one that looks after him. And so like Snap prefers Agnes Mm -hmm. and Matilda's jealous. And so she's like, I'm going to sell him. Yeah. And that's sad. I, and Agnes is sad about it. I was upset about uh, Snap. Agnes, yeah. <laughs> Agnes is just sat at home finishing a watercolor drawing for Rosalie. And Mrs. Murray comes in and just demands to know why she isn't with her daughters. And then reveals that she's actually a little nervous because Mr. Hatfield has been sniffing around her daughter a lot. And I guess she's like seen them from the windows, like in the fields mm-hmm. or whatever. And she's like, why is she always like we have a nice garden why is she always in the fields like by the road you should you should be with her and so yeah she sends the ultimate cock block agnes gray Mm -hmm. that is a governess's job that is in other duties assigned so agnes does find rosalie and beside her the odious mr elton i mean Mr. Hatfield. Mm. <laughs> uh, Snap goes with her and then immediately runs over to Rosalie and starts like tugging on her dress. And Mr. Hatfield just hits him with his cane. Yeah. Just like right on the head. And yeah. can I just point out one thing? Because again, going back to what we said last week, like look at the way Anne Bronte uses animals in this book. 
So we have Mr. Weston saving the cat and Mr. Hatfield whacking the dog. Just want to say that. Yeah. It's just like. Again, it's just like you everything. Need one more yeah. thing that Mr. Hatfield is an absolute pillock. There you mm-hmm. go. So uh, this whole scene with Rosalie and Hatfield is just out and out flirtation. No doubt about it. And the minute he leaves, Rosalie is like, oh, he's so boring. I wish he would leave me alone. Uh, I know Rosalie, by the way. Yeah. (laughs) So Agnes mentions that Mrs. Murray has sent her because she's worried about Rosalie. And then Rosalie gives us this great monologue about love and marriage and says, to think that I could be such a fool as to fall in love, it is quite beneath the dignity of a woman to do such a thing. Love? I detest the word. As applied to one of our sex, I think it the perfect insult. Mm-hmm. Which feels like such a Cynthia or Mary Crawford yeah. thing to yeah, say, it does. right? So she describes Sir Thomas, who is the man that she's basically being groomed to marry, as the greatest scamp in Christendom, which I thought was a great mm-hmm. line. She calls out the double standard between men and women basically having these premarital flirtations and admits that she wishes he were not so ugly, but she doesn't have any other choice. Her dad won't let them go to London and stuck in the country as they are, Sir Thomas is like the best of the bunch in her eyes. He's the richest. Yeah. He's titled. I really started to feel for Rosalie at this moment because I'm like, okay, this is a girl that knows what's, I mean, she knows what's up. I don't agree with what she's doing. But she's acting yeah, out. Well, she's, she's acting out in a way that I understand. Yeah, and I think that it's one of the reasons I included the quote from before as well. When she was, was that in the last set of chapters? It's just about, um, oh yeah, being a coquette, and it's like, just she's gonna, she's being sold off. So why not just like enjoy herself while she's young? Yeah. She's like acknowledging that her life isn't going to be this way forever she's only going to be young and unmarried for a short amount of time so yeah you know and no one no one is thinking of her feelings so why should she think of anyone else's Mm -hmm. so a few days later uh she's agnes is out walking with rosalie again who seems really agitated and she's absolutely on the lookout for mr h when suddenly she's like oh agnes take half a crown and give it to this like sick man (laughs) And Agnes is like, okay, that sounds fine, and leaves. And as she's going, she spots Mr. H in the distance. And obviously, he and Rosalie are going to have a flirt. But Agnes is like, oh, this is harmless. Because even if they do get married, they deserve each other. Yeah. (laughs) Which I thought, again, it's just like, not like bitchy is too strong of a word, but she's so snarky. Mm -hmm. She's just like, okay. So when she gets back to Rosalie, she discovers that Mr. H did propose to her and Rosalie did turn him down. But the thing that really seems to upset Agnes is just how happy Rosalie is about it. Like she's gleeful, like it's the most delicious thing that's ever happened. And she recounts the story. Amazingly, like word for word, we get all of his speech very well. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that was a neat trick that even Nancy, who has like a specific type of a dialect, could repeat Mr. Hatfield and Mr. Weston word for word. (laughs) These two are so memorable. It's so funny when people tell stories in this because they don't tell the story as themselves. It's like, it's not reported dialogue. It's just the dialogue of the person. But anyway, that's just like, that would be my editorial note. Sure. It makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Oh, so I actually did feel a little sorry for Mr. Hatfield because... 
I think the previous scene where you do see them flirting, it's not... In Emma, I don't know that Emma is, like, really leading on Mr. Elton Mm -hmm. as much because we know from her point of view that she is, like, actively trying to push Harry in his way. Right. And he completely willfully misreads misreads the situation. Yeah. But Rosalie is really encouraging him Mm -hmm. and is really trying to catch him and get him to propose. Like, her goal is to turn him down, basically. So in that sense, I was like, that's not great. Um, Mr. H is like, oh, you can't tell anyone because if you tell people, then I'm going to tell your romantic rivals and they will just exaggerate and they will make it so much worse. And that's such a real threat. Like we know from our wives and daughters read along that this can trash a girl's reputation. It could stop other people from marrying her. Mm -hmm. And she just does not even give half a shit. No. And she's like, okay, yeah, I promise. And then it's like, hey, Agnes, you propose. And now I'm going to go and tell Matilda. And then I'm going to go and tell my mum. And Agnes is like, if you tell Matilda, she's going to tell your brothers. And she's going to tell the servants. And then the servants will tell everyone. Like, come on. Yeah. Rosalie's like, oh, you're so boring. (laughs) I'm going to go. And like ditches her. And I think that the chapter ends with this hot take, which is the most Bronte statement I've ever read, (laughs) which was, I was sorry for her. I was amazed, disgusted at her heartless vanity. I wondered why so much beauty should be given to those who made so bad a use of it and denied to some who would make it a benefit to both themselves and others. But God knows best, I concluded. There are, I suppose, some men as vain, as selfish, and as heartless as she is, and perhaps such women may be useful to punish them. Great. So. Great. Um, I actually think if we ever do another bad pub quiz, and uh, I think at Gaskell's house, didn't we do the, like, who said it? Yeah. <laughs> which Bronte said this? Very, yeah, very difficult Bronte? one. Because that could be about, like, Geneva. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. But I do love that she's also like, such women may be useful to punish them. But she's also like, but also let's watch it burn. Snarky, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) Let's watch it all burn down. Um, So chapter 15, it's the next day. And Rosalie is bemoaning the fact that Mr. Hatfield proposed so soon and brought their little flirtation to an end so early. Like, what's she going to do now? Um, Matilda suggests that maybe Rosalie liked him more than she thought, but R's not having any of it. Instead, she excitedly looks forward to going to church next so she can see how disappointed he is, only to find that he kind of, like, doesn't seem disappointed at all. He's not paying her any attention, doesn't even look at her when she's there, and instead it's uh, Rosalie that becomes despondent and melancholy. So every time they go out, she's desperate to catch a glimpse of him or literally any of her many lads. But alas, her field of bows is barren. Agnes, too, is on the lookout. A slightly different lookout. She's looking for Mr. She's Weston. Peeping. She's peeping for Mr. Weston, of course. Um, luckily, they bump into the Miss Greens. And so Rosalie goes off with them and Agnes is alone and ignored and set upon by Mr. Weston, who seems to lurk in the bushes waiting for her. He's just always... That's not real. That's just like... He's always... That's not in the book, guys. <laughs> he's like lurking like someone on The Bachelor or Bachelorette, I should say. 
Can that I... is not the only bachelor joke you'll get in this episode. Well, let me tell you. Can I steal you for a minute? Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they discuss friendship and glass and, uh, you know, all those flirty topics. Uh, Agnes says that Miss Greens won't be friends with her uh, because she is in a different class. And yet she totally fails to acknowledge that she is not friends with Nancy Brown because she is a different class to Agnes also. That is, I mean, that is true. Um, but in general, though, they have this very nice chat. Uh, their relationship seems to come on really, really naturally. And it feels like a very realistic portrayal of how a governess and a curate might meet uh, once or, you know, twice and fall in love. Um and also, I should, you know, say here, too, like, she's the, the daughter of a curate as well. Kind of makes sense. Yeah. That, you know, they they pretty much, they have the same. She's filling in some gaps. Yeah. She's got the curate shorthand. She does. She does. So, you know, they're well matched. Um, let's see. Little little line from uh, their little meet cute here. From speaking of books in general, he passed to different books in particular and proceeded by rapid transitions from topic to topic till several matters, till several matters, both of taste and opinion had been discussed considerably within the space of half an hour, but without the embellishment of many observations from himself. He being evidently less bent upon communicating his own thoughts and predilections than on discovering mine. So I actually had a note in um, when I was reading it that that's like the opposite of Mr. Rochester Mm. because you've got a man and also like Henry Tilney or many men in the books that we read where um, he's evidently less bent upon communicating his own thoughts. Mm -hmm. Like he wants to know what she thinks. He knows what he thinks. He's actively trying to get to know her. Yeah. Well, you have with Rochester and this thing that I'm, you know, Charlotte enjoys is like these men who like challenge her and like just it's an overt like flirtation. And there's like sort of there's a lot of sexual <laughs> tension and there's a lot going on there. But yes, you're, you're right. I love that Weston's just like, yeah. So so what are you like? What's what's going on with you? He's just trying to he's trying to make the most of his time like anyone would on The Bachelorette. I have maybe 10 minutes to just figure this bitch out. Exactly. So um, the Miss Greens bugger off and they find themselves joined by Rosalie, who immediately shuts Agnes out of the conversation. Of course. Agnes can only watch as the two seemingly hit it off. And I think Rosalie's ease with talking really gets at some of Agnes's and Anne's own insecurities. So she says... She was never at a loss for something to say or for suitable words to express it in. So, yeah, that's uh, dagger in the heart. It's like the opposite of Agnes. Yeah, yeah. After Mr. Weston leaves, there's this chilling exchange between Agnes and Rosalie. Rosalie says, I mean that he will go home and dream of me. I have shot him through the heart. This is like... Tom with the nestlings, Rosalie and the men. Mm-hmm. What's Agnes going to do? Like, beat him to death? Like Nothing. No, not this nestling. <laughs> That's how I'd finish it. The um, chapter closes with this great line. And um, I do feel like every chapter just sort of ends with a, a clangor. She's good at that. She's good at opening and beginning chapters. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that makes her um, so readable and fast reads as well. 
Mm-hmm. Um, she says, I must restrain and swallow back my feelings still. There was the bell, the odious bell for the schoolroom dinner, and I must go down with a calm face and a smile and laugh and talk nonsense and, yes, eat too, if possible, as if it was all right and if I just returned from a pleasant walk. Oh, that that That's really sad. Yeah. That made me really sad. Yeah. Because I'm not good at that. I'd go down, they'd be like, oh, Hannah, what's wrong? <laughs> Uh, Rosalie, you bitch, leave me alone. <laughs> Let me eat my cold eggs. <laughs> Whatever it is they're eating, I don't know. Something Beef awful. Pie. Mutton. Mm. So chapter 16, the last of this week's roundup. Uh, it being a cold and gloomy Sunday, only Rosalie, of course, is inclined to go to church. And so, of course, Agnes has to go along with her. She is distracted and unhappy throughout the service. And at the end, where Rosalie would usually hang back to flirt with like whichever of her lads is closest, Agnes has to watch as instead she rushes straight outside and Agnes comes upon her in conversation with none other than Mr. Weston. And Rosalie is asking him to visit a sick girl on the estate. And he, of course, agrees. And she's like, oh, you should tell me the time. Because, you know, like, these cottages want to make their house tidy. Like, she understands them. Yeah. <laughs> right. Which, obviously, she doesn't. Um, and she just yeah she comes across like a caring and thoughtful girl and Agnes is just not buying the bullshit not even for a second Mm -hmm. so because of the rain a footman comes to Rosalie with an umbrella just to see her like into the carriage nice and dry and just leaves Agnes where she is and Mr Weston offers Agnes the use of his umbrella and she replies saying no thank you I don't mind the rain And then uh, I always lacked common sense when taken by surprise. And I loved that bit. And, you know, he smiles and he's like, well, you might not like it, but you don't like the rain. He's like, no one likes the rain, Agnes. Come Mm -hmm. on. And so he walks her to the carriage and he like hands her in. They touch. Mm -hmm. There's a physical moment. That hasn't been added in by Joe Wright. This is yeah, yeah. I was about to say this is like a Darcy hand clench situation, guys. This is really happening, and he <laughs> smiles at her twice, twice, two times. And I'm sorry to bring it back to Emma again, but that is how Mr. Weston and Emma's governess also like meet. He's got the umbrella. It's raining. Yeah, well, I should reread Emma. Kind of a nice little nod there. That is, yeah, that is a really good nod. Okay, so uh, Rosalie is obviously pissed off at Agnes. Mm -hmm. And as they pass Mr. Weston in the carriage, Rosalie is like basically hanging out of it, staring at Mr. Weston like, look at me. But he won't look at her and get ready for another clangor. She says that he missed a bow from me that would have raised him to the seventh heaven. Wow. I know, right? The stone's on her. (laughs) So... (laughs) Rosalie admits to Agnes that Mr. Weston is to be her new victim, or at least until the ball where Sir Thomas Ashby is bound to propose, her mum told her so. She expressly says too that it's not just enough for him to feel her power, but he has to acknowledge it. Mm -hmm. So she is specifically looking for him to say like, hey, baby, I love you. Like she wants another proposal. Yeah. Like, I don't know, I think this was getting passed off as, like, being kind of, like, a teenage flirtation or, like, a very relatable, like, teenage thing. But I do think 
that um certainly when i read it uh, the only thing i can think about is uh little tom and the birds and i think i do think it's intentional mm-hmm. so yeah i think mr weston is a nestling well just also like too. seeing it grow too because it'd be one thing if it just happened once with hatfield right before mm-hmm. yeah thomas but ashby she's but like, she's like i need more <laughs> yeah um so she says nothing more to Agnes on the subject and when they get back to the house, Rosalie is like, oh, hey, Matilda, do you want to go for a walk with me at 11 o'clock today? Which we have to assume is the time that Mr. Weston said he was going to mm-hmm. go and visit because she's like, I really don't want Agnes to come with me. And then they stand there like whispering to each other and then eventually Matilda agrees. And of course, when they come home, they are full of stories about Mr. Weston and how charming he is and all this time they spent with him. And that is a great place to leave it. We've got this simmering love triangle brewing and ready for next week's episode. Yeah, I really enjoyed this set of chapters. I loved getting to know the Murrays better. I loved meeting Mr. Weston. I like the beginnings of the romance because, you know, I love, I love a love story. Mm-hmm. And I really, really enjoyed just mulling over Agnes's friendship hypocrisy and just trying to work out whether or not it's intentional, whether or not it's like a device that Anne is using, if it's reflective of how she feels, what yeah. it says about Agnes, what it says about Victorian society. Mm-hmm. Not like a, not as like a casting a judgment thing, but just as like a little puzzle to, to just mull over. Because there are all of these complicated class relationships and Agnes is playing into it. She's, mm-hmm. she's a part of it. She's playing her part. And yeah, like I said, I just think that when you consider this as a set of chapters within the whole, her writing is really, really, really clever in the comparison of cruelty to animals against cruelty to people. Because in the first set of chapters, she's setting the bar really high, like, hey, hurting harmless creatures is bad. And then in this set of chapters, we're starting to see that same treatment, but against people. Yeah. But she's still using loads of animal language and just Im- imagery all the way through it. Mm-hmm. So there's another bit where Matilda is compared to a horse. Like she's keeping animals in mind while, you know, the bit with Snap getting hit. Yeah. And the, bit the proposal too, like, happening. Even the way that Matilda treats Snap almost sort of like mm-hmm. the way as that disposable. Rosalie treats men as well. So yeah. And Agnes. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and I just think it's um, it's a really smart and gradual build up, which is going to make the next set of chapters, the final set of chapters, like actually quite explosive mm-hmm. in some places and really hit where they wouldn't have if we hadn't got the animal abuse and the like slow build of the kind of people abuse. And I do think maybe like these are the pockets I was looking for last week. Yeah, yeah. And that it's less about her going on holiday with her family and more about, I think it's just like, what is the story about? Like, is it a story about her career? In some aspects it is, but is it a story about how we treat people mm-hmm. and power? And if it's in, if it's that, then yeah, like this is that. I, um, yeah, I, this is a great set of chapters. I do love like sort of how it, the book changes and evolves, just becomes more rich right here. And also just makes me think, God, what a shame we didn't get more from Anne Bronte, right? Like, I would love to see, Mm -hmm. I love Tenet, but I would love to see another romance from Anne Bronte. Because if she's bringing in all of these, like, class and power dynamics 
in these like social friend groups. I just want to see more of that. I think that's so fascinating. So yeah. What a downer note. Sorry. <laughs> there's no more from there's no more from Ambrante. So sad. So now um, let's jump into some listener comments before we get to our interview. Yeah, because obviously you guys had some great insights. And uh, let's uh, let's talk about Agnes first, since it's uh, Agnes Gray. It's her book. So Rosalind G says, I find Agnes's extreme self-effacement a bit frustrating. Um, you know, she she prefers to spend her day off with a bad headache because she gets uh, travel sick rather than just telling people firmly that she can't travel backwards in a carriage and walking instead. And wonder if some of these people would respect her more if she stood up for herself a bit, even within the considerable confines of her position. I like that Mr. Weston notices this about her and kindly points it out. I don't know if I would politely but firmly tell my employer that I want to sit in the fancy seat. Like, I don't know if that's a realistic expectation of Agnes. Yeah, I'm not sure either. I mean, I... um... I can definitely be too accommodating. I think this is Mm -hmm. something that I struggle with. I think, you know, we've talked about this quite a bit. So she's in her early 20s and, um, you know, still still young, still figuring it out. I think this whole book is about her trying to figure out what space she occupies in like any sort of power dynamic. Right. She she doesn't know, like, really how to assert herself. And when she does assert herself, often she's smacked right down. So, yeah. And she's there. She's their employee. She's not their house guest. Yeah. 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 Um, Elizabeth said that Agnes is no natural firebrand, uh, that she's been burned once and was actively trying to toe the line to be very careful about what she said to everyone in the family and to frequently suppress her true feelings while trying to cultivate some kind of persona as someone who has standards that you can respect but that aren't threatening. And I really liked that because I thought that, like, that's such a tightrope to be walking, Mm -hmm. you know? Like, you have no authority, but you have to be authoritative. You can't preach to your charges, but you have to teach them, like, morals. Yeah. Just, yeah. Yeah, that tightrope is hard. I think also just even with modern gals like ourselves, developing the work persona Mm -hmm. in general is very difficult. That's something I was on a three-hour Zoom call about last night. (laughs) I'm, like, a very enthusiastic... Well... (laughs) I was going to say, I'm a really enthusiastic person. I don't know if that always comes across in this show. But um, at work, I have to like, my tightrope is uh, just being less Hannah. Because I can be quite a big personality. And just being less of myself. So I'm like, I've got the opposite problem to Agnes. But it, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's horrible. And I catch myself talking and just being like, I wish I was naturally quiet. Like, I wish I was more like Agnes Grey or, or Anne Bronte. But I'm a Matilda. sadly no governess has fixed me (laughs) and i also really enjoyed this comment from anna um who said maybe it's because i haven't read a bronze for a few years but i am struck by the incredibly high standards agnes aspires to and the high expectations she has of herself she berates herself repeatedly for having desires hopes and feelings it's quite claustrophobic And I thought that was an excellent way of describing this book Mm -hmm. because Agnes's thoughts are very claustrophobic. I think that's what Anne's going for, too. I think that's what she wants to make you feel. 
Yeah. So, yeah. And I will say as well, so I was surprised at how hard everyone was being on Agnes and mm-hmm. how sympathetic everyone was of Rosalie. <laughs> so Elsa said that Rosalie is truly the Regina George of the Bronte world. And Which is fun. I think so that was funny. funny. That was really good. Um, and uh, Rosalind has some interesting thoughts saying, I'm feeling some sympathy for Rosalie and her flirtations simply because she must have been so bored. And really, who of us had... Who of us as teenagers hasn't behaved in a similarly foolish and self-regarding fashion? Perhaps I'm biased because I hate Mr. Hatfield so much that I'm really pleased with her treatment of him and her talk of how she doesn't mind about Sir Thomas's vices don't worry her. How everyone knows that reformed rakes make the best husbands, etc. carries a lot of pathos for me. She knows, as teenagers do that uh, they're being required to accept a world and a life which is in some ways pretty appalling and they assume a kind of cynical bravada about it. But knowing that your parents want you to marry someone so gross must be a lot for her to deal with, even if she tells herself it's fine. So, yeah, like there are moments in this book that I really do feel for her, um, especially in the beginning. But I think, like I said, when we were doing the chapter recap, it's that she continues with the behavior mm. and she wants sort of a bigger and greater response. She wants to hurt people and also look at like where she's, she's punching down too, right? She's punching down at Weston. And it's so interesting to have like another book. So like we've got the, we've got the Austin, like Fanny and Mary Crawford in Mansfield Park. We've got um, Emma and Jane Fairfax. We've got uh, Cynthia and Molly. And now we've got, uh, and Bronte's take on this like dynamic. So it's something that we've seen a lot. And I actually think that Anne Bronte's um, fashionable, wealthy young woman is she's just the least likable and least sympathetic out of all of those incarnations that we've seen, because I feel like Anne does less work to justify it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, just, I don't know. Like, I don't think she's wholly bad. Like she's young. So I do get that argument, but yeah. just... I think she's maybe more malicious yeah, than she's it, being given credit for. It's a lot of give and take with me with Rosalie. There's moments where I'm like, oh, okay. And then I go, oh, geez, Rosalie. I mean, like, come on. Like, yeah, this yeah. is too much. So I think all throughout the book, I think in the next set of chapters, particularly, there are some really interesting Rosalie moments. But yeah. There was also uh, a really good comment from Joy, which uh, kind of linked to uh, what Rosalind was saying. Um Interestingly, with Tennant, Anne Bronte spent a whole book refuting the idea that reformed rakes make the best husbands. And I do love that idea that Tennant of Wildfell Hall is almost like, oh, wait, and another thing. Like, yeah. she has all of these ideas in Agnes Grey that she didn't fully work through. And it's kind of like seeded in her mind. And then she writes the Tennant of Wildfell Hall and it just takes that even further. And Lexington felt like Mr. Hatfield is very much the modern man and said uh, that she had a hearty chuckle at Mr. Hatfield's reaction to being turned down. I thought women were amazing until I met you or other women totally want me. It's almost a comfort that negging has been plaguing women for hundreds of years and isn't just a modern headache. Yeah. He belongs in the like pantheon of men, right? With the... Put him up there with Thorpe. Like, <laughs> he, look, he cannot even lick the boots of my beloved Thorpe. <laughs> so shut your mouth. 
And of course, we were introduced to Mr. Weston in this set of chapters, and you all had plenty to say about him as well. So Elsa thinks that from a storytelling point of view, I find this introduction really interesting, how Agnes only gets to meet him through other people's stories and opinions about him before finally meeting him in person. It shows community and group dynamics quite well, which I thought that was a great comment. I I actually really love that storytelling technique, just period. Yeah, absolutely. And I thought uh, Vedrana as well uh, came in with a little insightful tidbit. Uh, There's something breathlessly exciting about Weston and Agnes trying to gather as much information about each other as possible in these brief snatches of conversation where Agnes is trying to decode whether it means what she thinks and hopes it means. Yes, we've all been there, right? Yeah. But comment of the week, in my opinion, so I do, this is my, Hannah's comment of the week, the Happy Chapman comment of the week goes Mm -hmm. to Lexington, who says that Miss Matilda may very well be the soulmate of John Thorpe. And now I, this is me, Hannah, I desperately would love to watch the season of The Bachelor where that happens. I mean, sign me up. Sign me up for that fan fiction. I'm I'm down (laughs) for it in any way, shape or form that it happens. So now we are going to jump into our interview. Uh, today we are talking to Finola Austin. She is also known as the Secret Victorianist on her award-winning blog. She is an England-born, Northern Ireland-raised, Brooklyn-based historical novelist and lover of the 19th century. Her first novel, Bronte's Mistress, tells the story of Lydia Robinson, the married woman who is rumored to have an affair with Branwell Bronte. Her book is available right now, and uh, we're going to chat a little bit about that and a little bit about the affair and Anne Bronte. So always love the Brontes. Uh, I probably was read Jane Eyre when I was too young for it, but I love my mother for doing that. Um, so I was reading Charlotte first and then the Evers from even before I was a teen. And we did study Wuthering Heights at some point in high school as well. Um, but I had heard of the Branwell Lydia affair in passing, but I'd never really given it much thought. Honestly, there's a lot of mm. um, folklore around the Bronte myth. I know the first biography of the Brontes I ever read was the Dark Quartet one, um, which I read as a teenager. And I, I loved the idea of their make-believe worlds and their strong sibling connection, but I didn't really latch on to the affair part of the story. Um, but I moved to New York nearly six years ago and when I first moved it was meant to be for a year a year became two and after the two-year point I decided I was in it for the long haul so I got my own apartment and I'd moved here with two suitcases but I Mm -hmm. decided to bring the rest of my stuff so my books had been sitting in boxes in my parents house and I actually shipped them across the Atlantic um it was really exciting for me it was the most exciting bit of getting my own apartment apart from adopting a cat shortly afterwards. Um, Mm. But when my books turned up, I did make a promise to myself that I would read any books that I owned, but hadn't read yet. Cause it's, you know, Mm -hmm. not cheap to ship them across the world. Oh, sure. And one of the books I had out of well, 300 or something um, was Elizabeth Gaskell's biography of Charlotte Bronte. And it's obviously the first biography I'd seen it quoted. I overall knew, you know, um, some broad strokes things about what she'd said, the kind of myth she'd established, the things people have maybe thrown into question in the years afterwards on the academic side. But I was reading it and I came across the paragraph um, where she talks about Lydia Robinson, though she doesn't name her, but she calls her this profligate woman 
She says she tempted Bramwell into the deep disgrace of a deadly crime. She says that in on this occasion, the man became a victim, like a really strong mm -hmm. statement. And she essentially suggests that it wasn't just Lydia's fault that Branwell died, um, but actually the fate of all the Bronte siblings as in right. Emily and Anne fell because they were so heartbroken about Branwell. And I had a very, very strong reaction to all of this. Mm -hmm. One, it was just so scandalous. And especially like looking in the footnotes and everything, and I kind of vaguely knew that she had been threatened with a libel lawsuit. So she'd withdrawn these allegations. And I just happened to have like a version based on the original. Um, which I'm very grateful for now. So there was that. Um, two, I think I had immediate sympathy for Lydia because this wasn't a time where divorce was really possible. So mm -hmm. I, I don't think it's the same as when people have affairs now. Well, one, plenty of people have affairs now and we may not think it's a great thing to do, but we don't go around calling people profligate or telling right. them they're terrible people. Mm -hmm. you know, especially if you, you have no options and you have no property and you would lose your kids if you left. What's a woman to do if she's unhappy in her marriage? Mm -hmm. And three, this thing about the man became the victim was just very compelling and interesting to me. Um, there is a power differential between Branwell and Lydia. She's his yeah. wife, but he's still a man. Um, she's 43 when my novel starts. He's 25. Um, but he's also a little bit of a free spirit, right? The Brontes were weird. Their upbringing was strange. Um, they have super romantic ideals and grew up on a diet of Byron. Um, so I thought, well, what must that have been like, disrupting her lifestyle and coming in? And the other immediate thought I had was as much as I love Charlotte Bronte, and I'm going to say Charlotte specifically, because I think especially with Anne, there is a little bit more variation and Wuthering Heights is its own beast. But Charlotte's heroines tend to be of a type where they're poor and plain and young and virginal. And I said, well, this is a woman who's wealthier and by all accounts, pretty beautiful and sexually experienced because she's a mother at this point um, and of course older. And yet she's still a woman trapped in the 19th century. So what would that mm -hmm. side of the story be like? And this is something that I guess I'd been interested in for a while, even my early childhood reaction to Jane Eyre wasn't just sympathy for Jane or Bertha, but even Blanche Ingram, right? Like she was just doing what she had to do and try to get married. And right. Yeah. I have always felt there's been a little bit of a, I don't know, empathy fail is too far, but I feel Charlotte Bronte's judgment, especially of attractive women. And oh, yes. Women beautiful. She like instinctively doesn't like them, which, mm -hmm to me brought up a load of my feelings about contemporary feminism and is there a right way to be a feminist or does it make you a bad feminist if you're vain? Doesn't it make you a bad feminist if you wanna get married or God forbid you like material things and you're gonna marry prudently and think about money. And so I, I had to put the book down immediately and start researching. And I was excited but what really made it for me was the more I found out, the more excited I became. So even when I just started to look into Lydia, I was like, oh my God, literally just before Branwell arrives, her mother has just died and her toddler daughter died a year before. Mm -hmm. So I started to have even more sympathy for this woman who I think a lot of Bronte fans, and I, I'm definitely a Bronte fan too. I don't want to be bashing them, but you know, have really accepted the pantomime villain version of. And I think a great example of that is To Walk Invisible, which I thought was a brilliant biographical show about the Brontes. And yet Lydia 
she honestly is like a pantomime video, uh, villain. When they have flashbacks mm-hmm. of her, she's like cackling and awful. It's really hard when you have writers who were writing in the first person, because I think you can slip into over-identification. And that's certainly something mm-hmm. I'm sensitive about. Like the Lydia I've painted is certainly not me. And she's certainly mm-hmm. highly flawed as sim- much sympathy as I have for her situation. But in rereading Agnes Grey, I had some of the same feelings about like, are we reading this too much as Anne? Because I think there mm-hmm. are times where you can see having distance and maybe we can see Agnes as potentially, you know, having a little bit more jealousy co- coloring her view of Rosalie or Rosalie. Um, and, it, you know, or I think there's a, there's, a, there's a gap between what Anne thinks as the writer and what Agnes thinks. Um, Overall, of course, I believe that, you know, it's probably pretty aligned, but I think there's some self-reflection going on about when Mm -hmm. Anne might've lied to herself about her feelings, when she might've been too reticent, when she allows herself to be bullied and be too passive, right? I think if anyone today wrote a character like Agnes, um, you'd be told by editors, there's not enough agency. Why is she just allowing people to push her around? Um, But, the characters are very young um, and of course Anne herself is pretty young but I do think there's a wisdom to the writing that maybe isn't entirely Agnes's and I'm also sensitive to people reading women's writing as more biographical always I think yes. it's something that happens a lot and it really is um, I think it's compounded by the fact that women tend to write more domestic stories so that sometimes do have some surface level mm-hmm. similarity with their own lives but I think it's a comes from a place of wanting to diminish their scholarship um, mm-hmm. and diminish the research that they put in or the books that they've read, um, because you know even where she where she cleaves to the historical facts and where she makes changes, it's all very considered on Anne Bronte's yeah. part and equally on Charlotte's. Um, so yeah, yeah, that was definitely coming into it. I will say in my Lydia. I have her as definitely not a perfect feminist either. Like I have her as someone who feels that it's wrong in a way, right? She is in some ways straining against the constraints of her time in society. And for her having an affair is almost a cry for help. There's a paragraph where she talks about, well, I can't gamble and I can't go racing around hunting and I can't go and get whores. Um, and I can't even drink really because people decide when I drink and once I'm sent out of the dining room after dinner, I don't get to move on to the hard spirits with the men. And so mm-hmm. for her, like this is her drug and this is her addiction. And I, I see that as how she and Branwell are similar. But Lydia at the same time thinks that it would be worse to have a job. Like that is the worst thing she can imagine. And, you know, she says to Anne that you've got to decide between being a drudge and a burden. Um, which of course is a conundrum that faces a lot of Bronte characters, but Lydia is wrong because there is a third way. You can be a drudge or a burden, or you can go on to be the most famous novelist in English literary history, but that's a possibility that hasn't even crossed Lydia's mind. Um, Now, how did you go about characterizing Anne? Like, where did you start with that? Yeah, so... I had read um, both of Anne's novels and her poetry. I'd also read um, Charlotte's biographical notices of them and of course, several biographies. So I had like a stereotypical picture of Anne as, mm-hmm. you know, the, probably the nicest one, the mildest one, pretty meek, the younger sister, maybe the most attractive of all three of them. 
um, maybe um, pining after some curate, though nobody can agree which one. So I have my mm -hmm. own suggestion in here as well. Um, but at the same time, I didn't want to over-research it. So I had, I did reread Agnes Grey around the same time I started writing this novel, but then I set it aside and didn't look back to it um, because I didn't want it to be too close. I wanted it to be, what are the, like the things that stand out in my memory about this novel? So I, and having reread it again in the last few weeks, um, there is that line where, um, where the Lydia character or the one who could be based on Lydia, Mrs. Mrs. Murray, right? Where Mrs. Murray says like, you can't, you don't have like a mother's like watchful care or something like that. I can't remember the exact wording, but the point is that stuck with me even though it wasn't the exact words. So there is a bit where my Lydia says to Anne, like you can't watch them with a the mother's care. And it's not the exact same right. words as in Agnes Grey because I think people have different memories of what they said and what the words were. Mm -hmm. But the thought is there that like, the way I look after my children is the way that is very different from the way that you look after the children. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing about Anne is her rel religiosity, um, which I think can be pretty off-putting for modern readers. And I definitely think could seem a little bit moralizing and annoying <laughs> um, to somebody like Lydia. Um, so what does she think of Anne? I mean, Lydia is pretty classist, so she doesn't think much about her quite honestly, but when she does think about her, she thinks she's judgmental, overly religious, um, that she's only that moral because she's never had a chance to be otherwise, right? That's like a big thing that Lydia thinks. It's like, well, if you got male attention, who knows how you'd act? Like you can only mm -hmm. afford to be this pleased with yourself because you haven't been tempted, which of course goes back to this idea of whether young women should be tempted and they're virtually put to the test, which is there in Tenant of Wildfell Hall. Mm -hmm. I, I do have one scene where Anne gets to speak up and it's when she resigns her position. Um, and, you know, she, she gets to say what she believes, um, which is that, you know, it's not only people who seem passionate, who have passion inside them. Um, and she does get to speak that, but Liddy is not in a position to really be listening. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think I do give Anne the opportunity to voice what her faith means there to her being like quiet and steady faith um, matters as much to him as he's everything as you know an overblown martyrdom um so that was certainly there I, i'm very intrigued by having branwell and Anne in the house and what might be going on between them but my book is entirely from lydia's perspective um so we don't really see those moments together um but we do have like a little bit of insight for instance when Anne discovers the affair with the O branwell or the Reverend Bronte Patrick did come to the house for dinner. That's that's historically true. So I have that scene and I have an overheard conversation between Anne and her father that Lydia walks in on where she's expressing her worries about Branwell, um, not just around Lydia, but his drinking at that point as well. Mm -hmm. Now, Agnes Gray. Let's talk about Agnes Gray a little bit. You've reread it recently, which is great. Thank goodness. I read it, I think now it's been two months now. <laughs> So I'm a little I'm a little rusty on Agnes because I'm in the middle of something else at the moment. But tell me your um, overall thoughts on the book, because I feel like this one's going to be a bit marmitey. Like, I feel like people are either going to go, I love this book or do not care for this book at all. Yeah, I think Agnes Gray is published with Wuthering Heights. And it's the biggest problem of how it could have been published because it's so quiet. 
compared to Wuthering Heights. And it, it does not have super passionate characters who are ready to die for each other or talking about eternal souls. That's not the way it is. Um, that doesn't mean that there is not heart there or not passion there. And I, I think there's, I think there's deep hurt at some parts of Agnes Grey where you really feel it. And maybe even more now than the first time I read it when I was pretty young. I think you really mm-hmm. feel for her. And there's a, a reticence about not sharing when something's really hard that I think a lot of people can relate to. I've always felt that Anne is the most Jane Austen-like of the mm-hmm. sisters. And I, I think that Agnes Grey reminds me of persuasion in some of those ways. Um, Ooh, talk about that. Yeah, I, you have a, a character who has to hide their feelings um, and not show the hurt that they're going through. Um, so this is where I'm going to get my persuasion names wrong, right? But when that I'll Anne, help when I can. Yeah, when that Anne um, <laughs> has to see Wentworth again after all these years, it's in public. She can't show how she feels. She has to hold herself together. And when Agnes Gray has Rosalie going after the man she likes, right, going after the mm-hmm. curate, just trying to win him over, just to be her plaything, she is the governess. She's only a step up from a servant. She has no claims on him and she has to like hold her hurt in and only cry when she's alone and sometimes not even then. And sometimes her reticence is so much that she doesn't even fully express it even in a first person narrative. Um, So those were some of the ways that felt like that to me. I think that the two halves of the book have always puzzled me. The move from one family to another family Again, I think if you were writing this now and an editor would be like, why do we spend all this time with the first family if the real story is about the second family? Um, but I think there's commentary there about like there are many types of bad families or there are many wrong ways to raise a child. Um, the violence towards animals has always been something that stood out to me, especially about that first half. And that's a place where I do think it has some commonalities with Warfaring Heights. Um, don't know how much of a conclusion I've come to you about that. I mean, obviously, Anne talks about it in a religious way as well. It's, it's interesting to me that she you know, isn't arguing. She's saying, yes, we have dominion over God's creatures, but um, that doesn't mean that we should torture them. Um, but those lines, and I'm going to misquote terribly, but when she's talking about the little girl loves her bird because it's beautiful and she wouldn't love a toad, um, that's always stood out to me too. And I think there's a sadness to that about that's how Agnes sees herself as more toad-like and people don't naturally love her. Um, and even, and the curate's name escapes me right now, but he, he even assumes that Rosalie is better than she is. He says, oh, I thought she was just oh, yeah. Um And he's thinking well of her because she's attractive, which again is something we know is true, right? Psychological experiments, mm-hmm. children want to be friends with children who are more stereotypically attractive and it goes the whole way through. Um, So I think it's, it's lovely that Agnes Gray gets her happy ending. (laughs) Um, Yeah. But I, we don't really see as much of that happiness and the book for me, I, I come away with that, the sadness about the people who feel themselves to be insignificant or people who have very low self-esteem um, I think some of those bits where she's walking back from church and has to stand behind everybody and the passage mm-hmm. where she's talking about how she has to seem interested enough in the conversation, but without actually getting involved in the conversation, like how many of us have had that experience 
And how much worse must it have been this time when, you know, there were so many rules for how people should interact with each other. Anne is more interested in subtext and what people aren't saying to each other. And there's occasionally humor mm-hmm. too with the first family, the bit where the parents are arguing over the dinner at the dinner table. Mm-hmm. I don't think there are scenes like that in Charlotte and Emily's writing where there's not that much commentary and the things being spoken about are trivial, but there's subtext and there's depth there. And yes, yeah, sometimes there's this idea of, yeah, making fun of people, right? Like the, and I think the servant character or the governess character really has a great perspective and a role to play in that because they're the fly on the wall that everybody forgets. And we are back. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Finola. I thought that all of the stuff about rethinking how Lydia Robinson has been remembered and discussed over the years was just really interesting, um, especially as it's just not something that has like occurred to me before. Mm-hmm. Even within the countless conversations we have had about the gatekeeping of legacy, you know, we talk a lot about the impact that Uh, Jane Austen's relatives had on her uh, the impact that Charlotte had on Anne's legacy but Mm. never really about Gaskell's impact on Mrs Robinson's right legacy and I do think partly that comes from knowing that the other people that sued or threatened to sue were like that really shitty school (laughs) Cohen Bridge and like you know that place was bad and so it's Mm -hmm. almost like if the two you're like well okay so the bad people are upset yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't do bad things. That I mean, that was Gaskell's opinion, having read, you know, her letters around that time. She was very mm-hmm. much like, if you don't want this stuff to be made public, you shouldn't do it. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah, I've def- definitely taken that for granted. Um, and I do just want to read this section from Arthur Pollard's Mrs. Gaskell's Life of Charlotte Bronte, which is a funny sentence to me. <laughs> <laughs> because, yeah, the way he talks about like the way she wrote about Mrs. Robinson and just kind of Mm. addresses some of those changes that Finola mentioned in the interview. The third edition sentences on the Branwell slash Lady Scott affair are as follows. Of the causes of this Branwell's deterioration, I cannot speak. And then the paragraph, whatever may have been the nature of Branwell's sins, let us read of the misery caused to his poor sisters in Charlotte's own affecting words. And then, you know, includes like some of Charlotte Bronte's letters, right? Mm -hmm. And he goes on to say, uh, these sentences are but the poor relics of the extensive and unmitigated attack in the first edition. There one reads, the story must be told. If I could, I would have avoided it, but not merely is it so well known to many living as to be in a manner public property, but it is possible that by revealing the the misery, the growing, the... The growing lifelong misery, the degrading habits, the early death of her partner in guilt, the acute and long enduring agony of his family to the wretched woman who not only survives but passes about in the gay London in the gay circles of London society as a vivacious, well-dressed, flourishing widow, there may be awakened in her some feelings of repentance. Mrs. Gaskell goes on to refer to this mature and wicked woman. Lady Scott's, then Mrs. Robinson's, making love to Branwell in front of her children. She speaks about Branwell's lingering of conscience, which caused him to reject her suggestions of an elopement, 
Then she moves on to a veritable crescendo, crescendo of denunciation, saying, The case presents the reverse of the usual features. The man becomes the victim. The man's life was blighted and crushed out of him by suffering and guilt entailed by guilt. The man's family was stung by deeper shame. The woman, to think of her father's pious name, the blood of honourable families mixed in her veins, her early home underneath whose roof tree sat those whose names are held saint-like for their good deeds, she goes flaunting about to this day in reputable society, a showy woman for her age, kept afloat by her reputed wealth. I see her name in the country papers as one of those who patronises the Christmas balls, and I hear of her in London drawing rooms now let us read not merely of the suffering of her guilty accomplice but of the misery she caused to innocent victims whose premature death may in part be laid at her door Ooh, strong words it's so strong and i really like that's rude (laughs) (laughs) don't know how else to i was like honestly shocked when i read it like she accuses mrs robinson of shagging him in front of her kids and killing the bronzes he um he goes on to just say like uh that Gaskell's intention really is uh to prove that Charlotte is a good woman mm-hmm. and so she has to go in extra hard. Yeah. Everyone's rude. Yeah. Everyone's the Victorians rude. are rude. They're just pretending not to be. It's ridiculous. They should all just <laughs> own up to it. Like an Agnes Grey with their snarky thoughts. <laughs> Nothing's changed. Stop being so rude, Victorians. Jesus. And Queen Victoria was rude to her kids. I watched a documentary about it. It's ridiculous. So if you want to dig more into the Lydia Robinson affair, I highly recommend you go check out Finola's blog. Um, And you can find that by visiting finolaaustin.com. Also highly recommend reading The Bronte's Mistress, which is available now. Hannah, if the good people want to keep up with what's going on with us, where should they go on the internet? God, it's so hot in here. <laughs> we are dying. Uh, you can find us, as always, on Instagram and Twitter at Bonnets at Dawn. You can email us. What's that email address? At bonnets at Dawn at gmail.com. It's because yeah. it doesn't have the at. I always want to say at Bonnets at Dawn mm. at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. But that's not going to get you anywhere. Yeah. Uh, and you can join our Facebook group by searching Bonnets at Dawn. And there we, there we will be. Yeah, sounds good. Come on in. We are still talking about Agnes Gray, and we are also talking about Louisa May Alcott's Behind a Mask, which is a very interesting story.